Shrink Wrap Radio number 813. Psychoanalyst Dr. Efrat Jeannot on our anxious selves. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. You're on the couch again with Dr. Dave. And Shrink Wrap Shrink Wrap Radio, all the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today is Efrat Jeannot, PhD. She's the author of the 2022 book, Our Anxious Selves, Neuropsychological Processes and Their Enduring Influence on Who We Are. Her body of work integrates neuropsychology and psychoanalytic thinking, advancing our understanding of psychodynamics and psychopathology. She's also an artist. Now, here's the interview. Dr. Efrat Ganat, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. Thank you so much, and I really appreciate you having me. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad to have you here, and uh, your name is a little bit of a tongue twister for me, but hopefully <laughs> I'll, I'll get it down. Yeah, uh, okay. Where is your name from? Israel. I was born in Israel. Born in Israel. Yeah, I thought it, yes. was, it was maybe some kind of a Hebrew name. I wasn't sure. Yes, the Hebrew and, name, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to be discussing uh, your new book, our anxious selves, neuropsychological processes, and their enduring influence on who we are. <laughs> Would it be okay if before we start talking about your book, if we could delve a bit into your background? Sure, of course. Well, we've yeah. just found out that, that you were born in Israel. Uh, what sort of family yeah. did you come up in? So, as many in my generation, many really bears some significance to what I've been working on and writing all these years. I come from a family of two Holocaust survivors, both my mother and my father. And growing up with the anxiety that had to do with that and understanding the the process of my flesh, right? Only in hindsight, I could analyze it. But yeah. at the moment of this intergenerational transmission of all the stuff that they went through. So yeah, for years, and I'm the older of two sisters. My sister kind of took a different route with that. She left the house earlier. Uh Um, And I was marinating more in all that anxious world of the past for a while. Yeah. Yeah, It's very typical of second generation. Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I, I missed a word. Did you say Holocaust survivors or was there yes. some other? Yeah, Holocaust survivors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Holocaust okay. survivors, yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
And uh, so clearly anxiety was an issue Absolutely. early on. And as you say, some yes. of it uh, transmitted uh, uh, generationally, which is something That's we've right. begun to understand yes. and acknowledge. That's right. That's um, right. What did you imagine yourself wanting to be when you grew up? You know, the other joke in, amongst second generation, a lot of us are therapists uh, uh-huh. because some sure. of the impulses are about taking care of the parents, especially my mother, who seemed way more fragile than my, my father. But yeah, there's an impulse to take care of them, to make their lives easier, yes. to kind of soothe them from all that stuff. Yes. So and I it, kind of had it in my head I was going to... Yeah. So you somehow you knew about therapists, you heard about therapists, or you knew therapists growing I, up? Not quite, but once I went to the university for my first degree, I started to work at a mental hospital. So and since then, it just took, you know. Yeah. And at what point did you first discover psychoanalysis? When did you first hear about Freud and psychoanalysis and all of that? I think, yeah, fairly early, because in Israel, the degree is specific. So my degree in clinical psychology is specific. It's like a little bit like graduate school here. It's not like a general uh, fine art degree. So even through my BA and certainly through my MA, we had a lot of uh, education about Freud and Adler and all of those first, you okay. all of those first yeah. figures in psychoanalysis, yes. So eventually you became a psychoanalyst. Uh, what about yes. it spoke to you? Psycho- you? You probably had some exposure to other approaches and knew that there were other approaches in the world, maybe. Uh, what was it about psychoanalysis that really not, spoke to you? Yeah, not so much at the beginning. Psychoanalysis yeah. was it. Was it, yeah. And I had veered away from it. I don't know if you took a look at my first book about the unconscious, really veers away from the more traditional views of the unconscious. But I became a psychoanalyst. I went to the NYU post-doctorate program. I, for me, it was really... The important thing was to become aware of how we work, what makes us tick. Yeah. And then trying to make our lives easier. And the third thing that was so important to me that I did not find in psychoanalysis so much is a sense of total non-judgment. So I also became a little bit enamored with the Buddhist kind of approach, the non-judgmental observing um, faculties that we can develop as therapists. So my relationship to psychoanalysis is complex because I do a lot of dynamic work, but I've incorporated a lot of mindfulness work, um, oh, yeah. all kinds of techniques and CBT stuff and DBT. And yes, I got I got that from your book. That really comes across yes. in your book that yes. you you yeah. really have. Uh, uh, expanded your your horizon. It's interesting yes. that you uh, were drawn to the Buddhist perspective for being non-judgmental. And I went yes. through a, a graduate program at the University of Michigan that at the time happened to be very psychoanalytic in its orientation. I just happened to end up there. I didn't 
There was nothing yeah. in me that said, oh, I want to study psychoanalysis. And my take on it, my young self, and I had all kinds of issues, I'm sure, but to me it seemed judgmental. And, exactly. and Yeah, and I, I resisted the idea that everything was pathological, you know. Exactly. <laughs> Every, everything was pathological. Everybody yes. was different only in the degrees of path, pathology that they uh, suffered from. Uh, now, you mentioned... So, uh, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's so interesting you say that, because this is what I try to achieve in both my books, but especially in this one. Yeah. We all suffer because of the way the brain is made. We all have anxiety. We all concoct all kinds of self-states. We all make up stuff in a way that distorting our sense of self because of the anxiety, yeah. Yeah, exactly yeah. Right. Now, you mentioned an earlier book on the unconscious, and you said that the view that you put forth in there was maybe different than the psychoanalytic classical yes. idea. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you, I want to spend most of the time on your current book, but can you sort of encapsulate yeah. the, the idea of that book? Yeah. You know, the more traditional uh, view, and of course everything is like changing now pretty rapidly is that it was like an encapsulated space that contained all kind of wishes and traumatic uh, material stuff we had to defend against. There was some like a little man there, a little woman that says, no, you stay out, you stay in. Yeah. And that doesn't work. It's not born by anything. The, the unconscious is with us all the time. It's really a function of how the brain, mind, body work together. Yes, yes. And, yeah, and um, in in my later years, I was drawn to uh, the Jungian perspective. And one of the things I liked about Jung was that the his view of the unconscious wasn't just the the id-riddled negative part. But also uh, other more positive and, and potentialities and so on. So I think we're on the same page there. Um, also, because the brain's tendency to enact what it knows and how it works so rapidly and automatically, the unconscious is really not that hidden. It's being enacted all the time in how we speak, how we talk, how we view the world, how we act. Exactly. Yeah, there's some memories we don't have access to, a lot yeah. of stuff, but yeah. it's enacted. Yes. So, uh, how, when and how did you develop your expertise in neuroscience? Because there's a lot of that in the book as well. So, neuroscience always interested me, even as a young, young student, let's say. Um, and when I started to work, I mean, and I worked, I've worked almost, I don't know, 35 years by now, maybe a little bit more. I really tried to understand why it's so hard to change. Even when we want to, even when we decide, I'm not going to do it again. I'm not going to repeat this. I'm going to behave differently. It's really hard. So this was one of the questions. And I couldn't find an easy answer in any of the psychodynamic. They would say, oh, the uh, secondary, yeah, I'm sure the secondary uh, uh, 
Secondary gains. Some reward, gains, rewards, yes. Or that we attach to some mother, father figure that won't let us change. All of it wasn't satisfactory to me. The other question was, and still is, why most of us, I won't say all, but most, we have that very negative self-state about our self-worth, about all our conflict. It's like a state that is riddled with stuff. And it's so universal. So together, these two kind of observations led me to the one conclusion that it's a combination of how we all are physiological creatures, how the brain works with the mind, the brain and the mind are the same, the brain, mind, and body are the same. They they form a unit. Yes. And... And you observe that fairly universally there is this, your observation that many people have a place where they're kind of stuck despite their conscious resolutions, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, Um, you would think we are such rational beings. Why can't we control ourselves a bit more? Yeah, right. Hard work. Hard work. So why this particular book at this particular time? So I've been thinking about this topic of anxiety a long time, working with patients. And I, and increasingly I thought that, yeah, it can explain a lot, you know, of why we stuck. <clears throat> why from very early age we are already subjected to all this forces that the fear system has or anxiety from the seventh month of uh, pregnancy or eight months when the amygdala is already active it affects our fear and it affects a lot of the uh, the connections that are happening in the brain and when I read that the amygdala let's say the fear system is connected to all the circuits in all the areas in the brain yeah. It makes a lot of sense. It affects how we think from very early age. Our attention, what we put attention, negative, positive, it affects our expectations, our worldview, how we think of ourselves. In this one, self-state. You know, in more severe cases, it takes over and then it's all negative. But most of us walk around with <coughs> more than one self-state. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, who's your ideal reader for this book? Did you have somebody yeah. in mind, a picture in yeah. your mind? I, I was hoping therapist because I think it it really can teach therapists to be really not judgmental. And when you understand that it's a brain, mind, body thing, that we all are subjected to all kinds of forces from evolution, right? Yeah. That are affecting us. It helps patients to be more compassionate towards themselves too, right? Yeah. To be less judgmental about why they're feeling what they're feeling or yeah, thinking so, what they're thinking. Yeah, so your ideal audience is to reach out to therapists and also maybe people who are yes. in therapy or contemplating therapy. Yes, exactly. Struggling to yeah. understand themselves. Yes, yeah. exactly. Parents. I'm you sorry. know, it's parents also. Oh, parents, yeah. That's... Who are raising small kids. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. 
<clears throat> yeah, a central premise of your book is that fear and anxiety are pervasive. And uh, that makes a lot of sense to me um, f- from another perspective of, um, I guess, the existential perspective that uh, I was influenced by early mm-hmm. on, that... Uh, just being alive, being you know the the situation that we find ourselves in in the world, yeah, right. it's ultimately anxiety arousing, and particularly uh, particularly the or particularly death. You know, if if you think about death and and uh, that we have a finite existence, if that idea ever <laughs> strikes you, that can That's be a pretty right. terrifying yes. anxiety arousing yes. thing. Yes. And yeah. you, you talk about fear and anxiety. Do, do you differentiate between fear and anxiety, or are they the same thing? Uh, you know, it's interesting. It has been debated in in the research community yep. and yeah. theoretically. So I think for now, we think, people think, that fear is more focused. It lasts shorter time. It's something very immediate and that's about to happen. Anxiety is more the manifestation of a chronic state of fear. Uh-huh. It doesn't go away. Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. It becomes chronic and then it really has, you know, life of its own. Yeah. That it develops. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned the fear system in the brain. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's a, an intriguing idea. I don't know if I've heard it referred to as the fear system. So tell us about the fear system. What what are the components of the brain, or you know, that makes it a system? Right. So that is based on John Punxsut's work. Yes, I interviewed and, him actually years ago. Oh, unfortunately, he's no longer with us. Right. Uh, but he did some brilliant work, uh, neuropsychological work on the emotional systems in the brain. Mm-hmm. And he came up with seven. And he did it on, on mice. He did it on all kinds of uh, uh, you know, rodents and stuff. But he has some very interesting findings. Of course, some of the findings are uh, particular to humans. But he could have sworn he, he would play us uh, tapes that the mice were laughing and giggling, the cubs. Oh, yeah, right. Because, yeah, because he came up with seven systems, you know, like the uh, panic and joy and play and seeking. I mean, there's seven and fear is one of them. And the other person who worked very, uh, maybe you interviewed him too, extensively with fear is, of course, Ledoux, Joseph Ledoux. He is one of the most prolific people who dealt specifically with the amygdala and the fear system. So there's a lot of stuff there. So the way that I think, and there's a couple of people like Anderson and uh, Adolphs, because they're actually from the West Coast, uh, also deal with the emotional systems of the brain. So the, the idea today is that they can identify the uh, circuits that um process emotions. And as Damasio said, the emotion really is a physical thing, right? The 
the body, something happens to the body, the body sends all kinds of messages to this particular system, the insulin, other circuits in the brain that process it, we can feel it. So, but what is so interesting about emotions is that we feel it in the body, right? Yes. We feel what we feel. And then, of course, we put words on it, what we feel, right? We put words. And then it becomes a very um, intertwined kind of entity, feelings, at least the way I see it, right? The feeling would be the, the, the sensations, the words we put to it, the actions we take, right? Yeah. So and all we, of that. Yeah, we not only put words to them, but then we get attached to those words, right? We get attached to to the description, uh, to a, to our story, in a, in a sense, to okay. our, consci- our conscious narrative. story, yeah, our narrative. The, the narrative, exactly. Which, by the way, the narratives are in, very influenced, every, like everything else, by our emotions. So if you have a negative narrative, like low self-esteem, I'm not good, everybody else is better than me, and all of that, it is uh, influenced by early, early anxiety, and then an immature brain comes up with all kinds of explanations, which are immature. I mean, in the sense of not related to reality. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things I noticed early on as a student is that uh, are, we are excellent at coming up with explanations. We can always come up with an explanation. It may or may not be factual, but you know we kind of are good at, at rationalizing, if you will. Yeah. Right, because we are, in essence, we are built and it's built in from evolution. We are creatures that seek meaning. Hence the whole idea of God and nature and all of that. We need to find meaning and explanation. Yes, yes, and that's another reason why I'm drawn to Jung is because his he really goes in his is a psychology of meaning and uh, yes, and I find exactly. that meaning, meaningful. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah. You you mentioned. Uh, You've referenced some researchers and theoreticians here, and I want to let let our uh, audience know that your book is, uh, you have a table, you have a a list of references at the back of the book, and and there are many, uh, uh, a lot of information is woven into the account without it being obtrusive or uh, it's not, it's not tons of footnotes and so on. Sometimes it's hard to get through a book yeah, because yeah. your eye has to leave the narrative and go down and figure, okay, now where was I? And so uh, I'm glad that your book doesn't do that. It's actually a readable book. And, Thank uh, you. That yeah. I really try to. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's very comprehensive. You really, as you pointed out early in our discussion, I think you've achieved what you were trying to do which is to uh, throw a really wide net and uh, not to, uh, you know, even though you have this background as a psychoanalyst and your current practice in that, it's in no way is limited. I mean, you're, you're talking uh, positively about uh, behavior therapy, and, uh, and I think you do mention narrative therapy yes. and, and, uh, and yes. a lot about mindfulness. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm kind of looking through some of my notes here that I have, maybe about see if I can find some other places to take us. You talk about the duality of our psychological lives, and that was uh, yes. that phrase kind of uh, leapt out at me. So why don't you expand on that for us? What is this duality yes. of our psychological lives that you're talking yes. about? So this is one of the more interesting things that I also noticed, and I'm sure every therapist, every practitioner notices similarly, is that we are not monolithic. We are not made, most of us, unless we, again, in some kind of a really psychotic break or really particular, maybe, disorder. We are are made of parts, like Bromberg, Philip Bromberg so much, wrote so much about, right? We have more than one self-state or pattern, if you want, or schema. People call it all kinds of different things. Right. I like self-state because it's a state that combines everything. Each state has its own feelings and and thoughts and, and ideas and, how, and acting. A lot, of this is, a lot of it is unconscious and just being connected. So let's say you talk to a patient one session and they are really down, dumps and really down on themselves and relate an incident in their office, how they felt very worthless and people didn't respect that, whatever it is that they come with. And then the next session, let's say we talk, we work it through, the next session they're in a different place, in a resilient, in a more resilient, in a more reality-bound, what I call reality-bound place. Because when they are in the other place, many times we are not aware that there's another another place that is not what we feel. In the reality, that person is achieving, is doing well. Yes, so they had some kind of uh, dysregulation. But we forget the positive, the resilient, and we are in the throes of the bad, the negative part. Yes, yes, yes. So we all are made of dualities, and this is also the brain work of being good, bad, reward, punishment. It really yeah. comes from that, I think. And, you know, I, I love the cosmological principle, again, going back to Jung and to, uh, to Buddhist thought, the, the idea of yin and yang, yin that, and yang so. that there's always the struggle of opposites within mm-hmm. us, and that seems to be kind of a universal, mm-hmm. universal principle. Yes. That's right. And and as you mentioned, but we it may not just be two parts, but there can be multiple parts. Exactly. I know, I know. I introduced it to two, but it's true. And you know, it's so interesting. I really think it starts with that um the way the brain works. It from the very beginning, does it feel good or does it feel bad? When mommy doesn't come to me when I cry, it feels bad. She comes to me, she nurses me. It feels good. So it builds on those kind of very immediate, innate tendency to evaluate the environment. Well, I think that's one of Freud's ideas that really, uh, the idea of the pleasure principle, you know, that uh, uh, it it really makes sense, you know. And and, um, I'm also thinking in terms of the different parts, how... We may find ourselves one way with one group of people and a different way in another group of people. Or even with one person. 
yeah. In our well, marriages, in our relationships. Yeah, right, right. But I, I remember, I, I think of myself as, at least at this point in my life, I'm, I'm, I may be always kind of introverted, but when I was in the role of being a teacher or professor, I would appear to be very extroverted, right? Because I, I would perform. So both are both are in there. Yeah. I can be a, a very shy, withdrawn person, but I can also be a very exactly. extroverted person yes. and take. A, yes. Usually, I'm I don't take up a lot of space, but if I need to, I can take up some space. <laughs> and how do you feel? Does two parts live well with each other? Yeah, I think so. Mostly, uh, yeah. yeah I, I think I'm I'm uh, fairly well along on the path of self acceptance. But uh, you know, these little yes, things uh, they they you. they they crop up. Their little tentacles pop up every now and then, right? And particularly the um, you do refer to to the pandemic and. Yeah. And um, that this is sort of the major, one of the major existential crises of our time. And so you talk about, well, how do, how do we balance those two things, right? Yeah. And, and let's, let's talk about that now. Where do you come so out it, with that? Right. It, it really on many levels, unfortunately. And... If we start of how it affected kids, let's say, it's not just the kids couldn't go to school, which is terrible enough in its own, but the, the parents, the adults around them, the anxieties, a little bit akin to how I grew up. It's something that envelops the whole atmosphere in the house. There's something bad going on. Yeah. And the parents feel it. They could not feel it. Even right. if they try to shield the kid, you can't. At the end, they feel what they feel. And so even on that level only, then all the social isolation, the yeah. idea, the danger at the beginning, but the, the ambiguity of it, not knowing when and how, if ever, it was going to end. Yes. You know, the disease, the physical dangers at the beginning, you know, that was part of this whole thing, all these people dying, right? There was so much there, so condensed in a relatively short period of time, especially the first year. When did we have the vaccine? After like a year and a half, I forget already. It was everything, you know, gets mushed together, but in a relatively short period of time, a lot of traumatic kind of processes that affected both the parents and the children and adolescents especially. They were cut off from friends, from their social life. Yeah, they, they miss a, a whole lot of developmental stages that, That's uh, right. that would exactly. be facilitated by interacting with their peers. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And also by interacting more widely with adults than, say, being stuck just with their family. Oh, that's exactly. That's an edit thing. Yeah. Yes. The place that, that I recall you come out in the book is that um, 
what we can hope for is to is to become integrated people to walk the, f- the fine line of of knowing that okay there's all the, all of this stuff is going on not be in denial about it do what we can to help make the world a better place and at the same time be aware of uh, the, of our own inner resources and uh, hopefully the resources of our fellows and society. Yeah. Do you know what's so difficult uh, with the uh, just thing about um, anxiety and how it affects us vis-a-vis what we're talking about? Because anxiety per se is not the problem per se, right? Because it's part of being alive, it's part of how the brain works. But the inability to tolerate it, and that's innate. Like Pankset said, you know, he said that it's such an unpleasant sensation that all creatures try to get away from. And you know, the, the example I always give is that even in an amoeba, if you shine a light on it, on it, right, in the little petri dish, it runs away because it doesn't like the light. So or, or flies from all levels of the evolution, all creatures experiences it, and no, nobody likes it. It's an unpleasant feeling. Yeah, so this I've, is, I've, I've noticed that, <laughs> not being a great Buddhist, I sometimes find I want to squash bugs that are in the house, you know, that they don't belong here. And I'm amazed at how skilled they are at trying to get away and save themselves yeah that's exactly and, right. and they yes. you know they frantically struggle to preserve yes. themselves that's exactly right and so do we obviously on a yes. different level right but i think it's the same primal instinct and this is why when stuff doesn't work well or they we have a predisposition for anxiety so everything in the environment makes it worse we want to run away from it. And instinctively, we come up with defenses. But I think there's no way around, around learning to tolerate some of it. we got to learn to tolerate some anxiety. Yes. And realize it ain't going to kill us. Yes. And understand what it's doing to us. Yes. And that's because a lot the of... people who go to war, you know, yeah. the people who go to war are anxious about whatever power, whatever, they don't stop and think, why am I doing it? One, one of the uh, things that you emphasize is psychological flexibility, and there's a whole literature mm-hmm. that's developed around that, right. which okay. is to, to be able to... And, and in Jungian psychology, they talk about the ability to tolerate the opposites or to you know, to hold the opposites. And I think that's also talking about a kind of psychological flexibility that to resist the pull to one side or the other, to say, oh, it's all this or it's all that. Well, it's it's more than just this or just that. Yeah. I believe that will be maybe, hopefully, the next developmental passage for human beings, for species, because we are not good at that. It's either or at this point. Really. Yeah, it's either yeah. you're with us, against us. I have the power. You have the power. I believe this is where we have to go. 
Otherwise, we're going to extinct those cells. Yeah. yeah, and there's a real debate about whether that's possible or not. <laughs> Two views of human nature there, right? That's exactly right. So you know what Ledoux said about that? Ledoux said this part, the prefrontal cortex, right? which is very entwined with everything, but at least nominally is the seat of the executive function. It's supposed to kind of teach us mindfulness and planning and reasoning and analysis, right, to analyze right. stuff. But he said we don't have any more space for it to develop. Huh. <laughs> so we're stuck with this prefrontal cortex. But maybe the chips that are going to come will... <laughs> you, you're even open to considering that <laughs> absolutely if Abs- it makes us better more uh-huh. integrated human beings yes yeah yeah not killing each other yes yeah so it's all it's all about integration and i'm thinking of the the corpus callosum the tissue that connects the two hemispheres okay. and, and that's there for a reason obviously that we are intended to uh to draw from, to That's utilize right. our whole brain, our whole self, rather than just become over, you know, lopsided. Yeah. Yes. What have we not touched on here that maybe you were hoping that we would talk about? <laughs> yeah, so I, I would like people to understand in general how them may to kind of be curious about themselves uh-huh. right to ask questions about their repeated patterns and again non-judgmentally to understand that because of the way the unconscious works because of the way the brain works a lot of what we do is we enact habits feeling habits relational habits uh, emotional habits i mean in a very big sense habits, not like just riding a bike. But it's not very different in the brain, right? Because when the first patterns are being laid down from the very beginning, from the very beginning of life, they build on themselves. So emotion goes in it, thoughts goes in it, and it becomes a pattern that just, when it's being activated or triggered, it's just getting enacted. And you can see it in couples. You can see how they react to each other so automatically, so well oiled, you know. Uh, all, all of us do that. So I think to just be curious to say, what is this pattern about? Why am I repeating myself? I, I need to stop. I need to slow down. Not to stop the behavior because we can't. It's not easy. But to slow down, to stop and think. Uh-huh. So this is one thing, to be curious. The other thing is to understand that emotions and cognitions are not different in a sense that they are separate. They're very entwined in the brain slash mind. Uh-huh. It kind yes. of was a fallacy to totally differentiate between the mind yeah. and the body, mind and affect. They're very connected in the brain and in our feelings, in our experiences. You're talking about your hope um, for our evolution, what do you think about the evolution of psychotherapy? Uh, how do you think that psychotherapy is evolving? And and uh, uh, what are your observations? No, I come, yeah, I come from New York, which is still very psychoanalytic, 
and does not so much put stock in the neuroscience and CBT or DBT, whatever the newer behavioral approaches. But it's, it's being dragged, kicking and screaming because there's no way not to understand that words in themselves, just talking about things may not be enough. And that insight, it may not be enough. In order to change, we need to practice, talking about the Buddhist way, right? To really put our behavior in a way that is a little bit different. Because the brain needs to learn different ways of being. Just talking about it once a week, twice a week, even four times a week. It often does not, does, is not enough. We need to, in real time, to struggle with what all these t- difficult things are in real time. When I'm anxious, when I feel very angry at my spouse, when all of that, to really slow down and see what's going on. And when you say in real time, uh, you're also, I think, alluding to the fact that you cover in your book that the psychotherapy patient is only with their therapist. They're in therapy maybe an hour a week. That's right. And uh, there's all this other time where the work needs to happen. Exactly. that. That's our homework, I think, is so valuable. Yeah, yeah. And psychoanalysts don't like it because, you know, they came from the approach, and I think it's changing, that we just have to be so neutral, not to guide, not to put things in the patient's mind, but... It became so passive, such a passive enterprise that left the patients all for themselves to marinate in the same issues, in the same uh, defenses. I, I didn't work so well. I have a few patients who came from years of psychoanalysis. And it didn't, it gave them some insight, but didn't change the character. Yes. Yes. Well, how can interested viewers, listeners find out more about you and, and your work? So, I have a website, uh, Uh I'm also a painter. Oh, I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, <clears throat> I'm sorry to cut you off, but I wanted to ask you, okay. I, I knew that you, I saw that you're a painter, and I wanted to ask you, well, how does your painting fit into everything that we've been talking about in terms of anxiety and habits and all of that? Yeah, it's, um, I've been painting throughout really my whole life. And I think at the beginning, it was a way to give voice to some of the anxieties. When I look back at, uh, at some of the drawings I made as a child, as an adolescent or as a young adult, they are not very pleasant looking. It's a lot of figures that I'm paying. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. So that was. And then I moved away to, so it was the yin yang. I moved to color. <laughs> now it's all about color. So yeah, it's another way. I love colors now. Yeah. 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 So do you have a, a 
I had asked you uh, how people could find you. Uh, do you have a, a different website for yourself as a painter? I put some. I put some work there on the okay. website. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I th- uh, appreciate the opportunity to spend this time with you. Uh, I highly recommend your book to uh, people who want to have a broader kind of understanding and um, a better sense of, uh, you know, I asked you, well, where is psychotherapy evolving to? But I really think that's what comes out in your book is a very uh, strong appreciation for uh an evolutionary process and and the integration that's going on that's in right. psychotherapy. That's exactly right. Yeah. So yeah. I really want to thank you for being my guest today, Dr. Efrat Ginat. That's very good. <laughs> and I really want I want to thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure. It's Great. really very nice. Oh, thank you. Yeah. The field of psychotherapy is evolving, and the 2022 book, Our Anxious Cells, Neuropsychological Processes and Their Enduring Influence on Who We Are, by my guest, Efrat Ginot, Ph.D., provides an excellent overview of where it's going. In our interview, she turned out to be a warm and delightful guest. It emerged that our overall view of the field has a lot in common. I've shared here in the past that my initial reactions to psychoanalysis in grad school were that it struck me as authoritarian and judgmental. It's interesting to me that Efrat shares those perceptions and consequently staked out her own unique synthesis of what it is to be a psychoanalyst. I wondered if her book about fear and anxiety was somehow rooted in her own early childhood experience. She was very open about those origins. She was born and raised in Israel, which, to my mind, must carry a certain background buzz of danger and transgenerational trauma. Beyond that, however, both of her parents are Holocaust survivors. Looking back, she notes that she unconsciously tried to reparent them to soothe their fears and anxieties. As a result, her destiny to become a psychotherapist was already set in motion. She says the children of Holocaust survivors often end up becoming therapists. In this context, it's not surprising that she began reading Freud in her high school years and went on to major in psychology in college. The thing that drew her to Freud was her desire to understand what makes us tick, She still has a deep and driving curiosity about that, which has saved her from being locked into any one system. So even now, as a New York City psychoanalyst, a mecca of that approach, she's a psychoanalyst with a difference. She's embraced Buddhism and mindfulness, which are all about non-judgmental acceptance and curiosity. She wants her therapy clients to be able to be aware of their fears and anxieties without being overwhelmed or possessed by them. She wants them to be curious about them and accepting of them. This is not to say that therapy or self-acceptance will come easily. 
They must go through their own version of the valley of the shadow of death in order to reach the light. They need to accept the multiple selves we each carry for both their dangers and their gifts. To me, this is very consonant with the Jungian idea of facing and eventually integrating our shadow. The notion of holding the polarities without becoming seized by them. It's about learning to tolerate ambiguity. Afrat doesn't speak of Jung, but she does draw upon theory and research, emphasizing the importance of psychological flexibility. Her work and her book ultimately are about psychotherapeutic integration. As I suggested in the beginning, her book depicts the current state of the evolution of psychotherapy in a relatively compact and very readable form. She makes the case that fear and anxiety are pervasive, built into our very nervous systems. Neither insight nor intellectual understanding will banish them, but we can learn to tame them and to live with them. There is so much more that can be said, but the bottom line is I strongly recommend our anxious selves, neuropsychological processes, and their enduring influence on who we are by my guest, Afrat Ganat, PhD. Hello, David. This is Gloria Ullman from Adelaide in South Australia, and I'm coming out. Now, recently I made an extraordinary donation, or I prefer to call it a contribution, in addition to the one I usually make around December each year and asked you not to mention it. But I've had second thoughts and perhaps it just might inspire somebody somewhere, some way. So I'll leave it up to you whether or not you choose to play it. But the circumstances were that I recently had to have my 13 and a half year old Lilac Point Siamese cat, Chrissy, put down. And I had her cremated by the Animal Welfare League and obtained an urn with a tea light candle holder in the top of it and set up a shrine on her favourite elevated platform bed with a photograph and assorted artefacts of hers. And one day I lit the candle and I was just watching it and different things were going through my mind and I thought I would really like to do something to commemorate her in a more concrete way. So I thought about the donation to the Animal Welfare League, but as I've been doing that for a long time anyway, it really didn't feel any different. And what I thought of then was the fact that she was and still is and probably will be for a long time the most frequent figure other than myself in my dreams. And that's when I got the bright idea of making a donation to the podcast in her memory. Now I say that she was part human but what she really represented to me was my inner child and in loving her in the way that I did and the very close bond that we had, I was able to heal a lot of the deficiencies in my own internal mother-child relationship. I'd never had children of my own by choice, and animals, and particularly cats, were substitute children for me, but it's only in the time that I've had Chrissy that I really began to fully appreciate the psychological benefits of companion animals. I was also inspired to make the recording by re-listening to the Francis Weller interview that you did number 279 
on grief, ritual and the soul of the world. You mentioned it recently in an email that you read from Oscar, I think it was, in Sweden, where he said that it was one of his favourites. And I remembered that it had a big impact on me when I listened to it. So I went back and re-listened to it. So that gave me the impetus to go ahead and make this recording. So thank you so much, David, for all, all the work you do. And I really, really hope that you get the support that you need. And it's not just for you. This is a gift to the world. Thank you. I know this is a bit long, but I just re-listened to it before sending it and want to add another little bit and that is that I said thank you David for the work you do but really what I want to say is thank you for the person you are because that has been as much of an inspiration as the actual education that I've got through the podcast and in particular the encouragement you have given me to do my dream blog it was a dream that I had with you in it that really motivated me to do the blog and I recently hit a wall with it and and you noticed and emailed me to encourage me to keep it up so I have actually done that now and intend to keep on going with it and I really regard it as my equivalent of Jung's Red Book. So thank you once again, David, finally. Thank you, Gloria Ullman, for sharing your story of loss and healing. Your story is an inspiration to us all on the value of healing in the imaginal realm. And of course, thank you to all you other monthly supporters. It feels so good to see your names as I scroll through the list of monthly donors preparing for each podcast. Once again, Time to shrink wrap it up. Thanks again to today's guest, psychoanalyst Afrat Ganot, for so warmly sharing about her background, her work, and her new book, Our Anxious Selves, Neuropsychological Processes and Their Enduring Influence on Who We Are. My return guest next week will be longtime friend Michael Mayer, Ph.D., speaking about his book, the Path of a Reluctant Metaphysician. I found his personal journey through Tai Chi, Qigong, and other modalities totally fascinating. I think you will too. Until next time, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.